0: Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. I've spoken with you, or several of you recently here, and you are aware, especially for the new members or those that are uh, looking to become new members, I shared this recently, you are aware of our vision statement here at the church, at the chapel, and it's, it's simple, it's to share the hope of Jesus with individuals, the community, and the world. But as time progresses, truth becomes harder to find, and so it is so important for us to rightly divide the word of truth. People often ask us, what do you believe here at the chapel? And we quickly answer what everything that God's word states. Well, that statement in and of itself is a big response. And it sometimes warrants a further explanation because one person can say that and and, and you have an understanding of what that means. But they have a completely different understanding of what it means. And they actually can believe something outside of God's word. And so sometimes what we often state is, is really what everything can be boiled down is is. This, and you've heard of this before, and it's referred to as the five solas. And this is really what we stand upon. First off, you have sola scriptura, which means we believe and hold to the Scripture alone. We hold to sola fide, which means faith alone. We hold to grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Bottom line, everything we hold to is based upon the authority of God and what is contained in His Word. This year, as many of you know that you've been traveling or visiting with us here for a while, you understand that our focus, our teaching theme this year has been on this command to walk worthy. And in so doing, our focus this year is really to dissect what it means to have faith in Christ alone. What does it mean to walk worthy? Well, that's found in Christ alone. As we seek to discover what it truly means and what it looks like to walk worthy as a Christian, we started off in the book of Colossians. We understand that the goal of Colossians from the Apostle Paul was to define and defend the church of, to the church of Colossae this preeminence of Christ. In other words, Christ having the full and complete authority over all things. And through that study, we discovered this doctrine, the defense, and the practical implications of Christ's preeminence. That We ended that last week. This week, we transitioned to another book. And so if you could take your Bibles with me to James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1. Our focus this morning is simple. We're not going to take a long time to really dissect because we're only focusing on one verse. And really the purpose of our message this morning is to understand the foundation and context of this book. It is crucially important for us to gain the right foundation when it comes to this proper observance of Scripture. It's 100% crucially important for us. This past week I sat down with a couple That is new here at the church and i explained to them that everything we teach here at the church we seek to give you the bible and the truth within its proper context and according to the proper interpretation of god we don't seek to give you my opinion or anybody else's opinion but what god's word says within its proper context so in efforts for us to study properly james we have to observe just one verse here this morning that gives us this context of this particular letter. So if you could stand with me out of respect to God's Word, we're going to read one verse. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. As I mentioned earlier, our purpose this morning is this, to provide the proper context of James, to by defining the author, the intended audience, and the aim of the entire book. And so that with this proper interpretation, we can see the spiritual exhortations that God has for us through his servant James. And so the title of our message this morning is simply an introduction to James. So you can have a seat. Thank you for standing. Now, if we're not careful, and I'm sure some of you have done this before. and How many of you do your devotions out of a study Bible? Go ahead and raise your hand. You have a study Bible in front of you. kind of gives you the notes a few of you okay so you you may have done this before i know myself i've done this as well we can assume something in the bible to be the truth when really it's it's nothing more than our assumption right it's our assumption based upon something that may not be true for example when it comes to this first verse there are many and again myself included when i was younger that would assume that the particular james here that he's talking about is either james the son of or James, the son of Zebedee, who is also the brother of John. Both of those James being one of the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ. We can assume that that is who this is, because if you were to look at the Gospels, they were all written by, right? They were written by prominent people that were disciples. We think about the Apostle Paul being a prominent person, and so we can assume that this James here would be that, or one of the disciples. But to assume would be to assume the wrong thing. This is why proper biblical understanding within its context is so important. For example, when it comes to the proper interpretation of a passage, Howard Hendricks in his book, Living by the Book, explains it this way. He says, We must look at the content of the passage within the proper context, which includes the historical context in regard to the culture in which it was written and then compare that truth to the rest of scripture i was actually talking to rich here before the service and he was he was shared with me that he was attending a church at one particular time and they did a series or a study on the old testament prophets and the old testament characters and they were trying to explain the old testament characters and dissect them and psychoanalyze them in light of today's culture and you cannot do that because the old testament is nowhere near to the culture we have today And so there's a lot that goes into this in assuming or understanding, not assuming, what the truth is. So when the first verse reads here, James, a servant of God, rather than assume that this is the same James that was part of the inner circle of the disciples, we have to discover who this James really was. Because understanding the author will help us understand the context and the purpose and really the aim of the entire letter. And so let's start by observing first off the author. Verse 1 starts off by saying, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two things that we can observe in this particular, just in that phrase. And I want to teach you and help you understand, okay, how can I dive in deep? Rather than just reading something and assuming we have the, we have the right interpretation there. The first thing we assume here, or we can understand, is that James was very familiar with his audience. Because James does not give his last name. He just says, James. And so the audience that's hearing this and understanding this knows him personally. They know him on an intimate level. The second thing that we can observe here is that James had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ because he refers to himself as who? A servant of God or bondservant, some of your uh, uh, um, Bibles may say, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, who is this guy? Who is this James? If he's not either of the disciples, who is he? This is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some out there that believe that Mary remained a virgin after delivering Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the Catholic religion holds to this. It's oftentimes referred to either as perpetual virginity or ever-virgin. Now, we understand that that belief system does not match up with what the Scriptures actually say. For example, Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, it says, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. This is after the angel of the Lord delivered him the news that that his wife, or his soon-to-be wife, would deliver the Messiah. He rose, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took him, his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name jesus now bible scholars what indication in that verse shows us that we should not assume that she remained a virgin a little word there until so the bible commanded and, and, and the angel lord commanded joseph to not have an intimate relationship with his wife until after jesus was born We may ask yourself well, why is that such a big deal because they didn't want to give any kind of indication that jesus christ came from the seed of man want any indication of that whatsoever and so Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. Then they consummated the marriage. So that's one proof here that shows us. And he said, well, that's not really clear cut. I mean, you know, what well, you know, but there's other parts of scripture that actually give us an indication that she had more kids. So, for example, Mark chapter six, verse three states, is not this the carpenter talking about Jesus, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Now, we don't know how many other children Mary had after Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that. But based upon this verse, we can, again, assume or take an educated guess that she had at least six other children. If you count all the brothers and the Bible says sisters, well, we can assume that that means at least two. And so she had at least six other children after Jesus was born. And so as you can see here, James being a part of that list was listed as one of Jesus' brothers. Now, since Jesus was not born from a human man, Jesus was, or James was Jesus' half-brother. So what do we know so far about this? This author of the book is not James' the disciple, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, that also further means other things for us. James, in and of itself, being the half-brother of Jesus, provides for us an interesting insight. James is actually writing from the perspective of a converted skeptic that knew jesus on a very intimate level james did not become a follower of christ until after christ resurrected from the dead john says the apostle john says in john chapter 7 verse 5 that even his own brothers talking about jesus did not believe in him there's an indication there that james was not a follower of the messiah before his death and resurrection. Now, before you give James too hard of a time, say, how could you not believe it? You live with him. I think that that actually may be the hardest to accept, that your own half-brother is the Messiah. And if you were to look at it from a cultural standpoint in those days, uh, they most likely shared a room together, maybe even at times shared a bed together, because they didn't live in a big, sprawling house. They lived very closely together in a smaller house. And so here's James eating with his brother, Jesus, perhaps sharing a bed with his brother, Jesus, perhaps even at times, uh, you know, playing, of course, playing or just knowing him on a very intimate level. I think if I was in James's position, it would be hard for me to accept the fact that my half brother is the Messiah. You've got to be kidding me. We have the same mom. Now, I don't know if he assumed that he had the same dad. I don't think he probably even accepted that he was miraculously born. That's a big pill for him to swallow. And so before we give James too hard of a time for being a skeptic, we need to place ourselves in issues, and I think we would probably find ourselves in that same type of position. But Paul alludes to the fact that James does become a follower of Christ when Christ appeared to him after his resurrection. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul states, After that he was seen by James, again, James here, the half-brother of Jesus, then by all the apostles. So he sees him. Well, we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, James was with his half-brothers, or his brothers, and Mary in the upper room as they waited for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to follow the the line there, right, you have Jesus Christ who uh, ascends into heaven, and just before he ascends, he says, Wait for me, and the Comforter will come. The Holy Spirit will come. You just wait for further instructions. And so those that followed Jesus, that became believers of Jesus, went to the upper room, and they remained there. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, the disciple, the apostle, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the other one, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then it adds this, and with his brothers, indicating that James is there. So now James is a follower of Christ. After his conversion, his commitment to the Lord, God's grace was evident in the life of James in a tremendous way. He quickly rose to a prominent leadership position and he eventually became one of the leaders within the Jerusalem church. In fact, Paul refers to James in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 as one of the pillars within the Jerusalem church. We say, okay, well, what's this Jerusalem church? What's the big deal about that? The Jerusalem church was the first church of the New Testament. It was where the church was founded and all the other churches stemmed out from it. This is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said just before he ascended into heaven. He said that you will go and you will wait for me and the Holy Spirit will come and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem first, then in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in God's grace, this skeptic of a man was chosen to become one of the prominent leaders within the first church of the New Testament, which was really the home base Of all of the churches this is what this man became here within this particular study james had a deep longing for the lord to do his will he had a deep conviction to spread the message of hope that his brothers came to deliver to the world along with this call james had a deep love and longing for the people within this church eventually as the historian josephus reports james was martyred for his faith in ad62 as we'll look at a little bit later, even when all the other Jews or most of the Jews and the Christians fled Jerusalem because of persecution, James stuck in there. And he remained as a leader in that church in Jerusalem, holding the ropes for all those that left. This is the type of man that wrote this letter. This is who wrote this letter. So what do we see with this author? What we see here is a man that knew Jesus on a very intimate level. He was his own half-brother. But being so close to Jesus, he wasn't always a Christian. It took him a while to actually be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he was a skeptic for most of his life. But personally seeing the resurrection of Jesus, James gave his life to Christ. We are literally reading a writing of a skeptic-turned-Christian who had a deep love for the Lord and for the church. It's different than Paul. Paul thought he was a Christian based upon keeping the law, Now, I guess you could say he was a skeptic. James just didn't accept Jesus at all, period. But he was converted, and then he writes this letter. This is why James introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we understand the background of the author, what we have to observe now is his intended audience. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, James, servant of God. Then he says, to the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, the fact that James addresses this letter to the twelve tribes means that James was addressing this letter to, can anybody guess which people group? Twelve tribes, who are they? Jews. He was addressing it to the Jews. The twelve tribes goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, my, my passion here as a pastor is to try to help you understand how the Bible connects as a whole. And so Wednesdays, we're focusing on an Old Testament character, Jeremiah, and I'm trying to help us understand how the Bible connects as a whole. And so we're going to do that here with the twelve tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel came, as we understand, from the sons of Jacob. Jacob, whose name was eventually changed to Israel, and we see this recorded in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. It says, In which God states to Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. We understand this happened after a night of wrestling, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. It will no longer be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel whom God chose to bless the nation of Israel. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. Now, follow me here. I'm going to try to go slowly uh, just because it's a lot. Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, Dan, Naphtali, Issachar, Gad. I can't continue the number because I don't have 12 fingers. Asher, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Those 12 tribes of Israel are... Now, I want you to see if you notice a difference in what I just read. Reuben... Simeon, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. If you were listening closely, you may say, Pastor Brandon, there is a difference between the names of the 12 tribes and the names of his 12 sons, specifically saying there was no Levi and there is no Joseph. Instead, those two names are replaced with Ephraim and Manasseh. I found a discrepancy in the Bible, some people would say. Well, let's explain as to why that's the case, because the Bible does explain it god promised abraham as we understand in the abrahamic covenant that god would provide for them or give the jews a nation and they would be blessed through that land but not just any land a prosperous and fertile land and we know this to be the promised land i had a conversation with a gentleman not too long ago who is from uh damascus syria and in the conversation i asked him i said you know what, what's the climate like what's the culture like and he's explaining it there and then i asked him a second question which i knew the answer i wanted to hear from him and uh, I said, well, who's got the best climate and culture there? Because he was talking about how every country has its different sets of benefits. And he said, well, without hesitation, Israel. Well, that's because Israel, where it's currently located, is the promised land. God gave them the best land. We understand that to be Canaan at one particular point. That's one of the reasons why they're constantly being attacked. Because all these other countries want that land because it is so good. And that's part of the direct fulfillment that God promised to them. And so, going back to the Old Testament, when the tribes of Israel inherited the promised land, as you see throughout the Old Testament, the descendants of Jacob's son Levi did not receive a territory for themselves. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 13, verse 14, only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. So, for Levi, he did not receive a territory for himself, but we understand that the descendants of Levi were the priests. So instead of having a territory for themselves, they were scattered all throughout the cities, all throughout Israel. So that takes care of the Levi thing. The most popular or well-known son of Joseph did not have a territory named directly after himself either. You say, well, what's the deal with that? Well, the result of that is because of a promise that was made to Joseph based upon his faithfulness in saving his family from the famine when he was a ruler. In Genesis chapter 47, we understand, right, the story of Joseph and the Potiphar and, you know, Potiphar's wife and one of those things you learn as a kid. Well, we understand that in Joseph's faithfulness and according to God's sovereignty, he was placed as a high command in all of the nation. Well, his own brothers who had sold him into slavery goes before Joseph, not recognizing who he was at first and Joseph knowing who they were. He wanted to bless his family. And so even in the midst of that famine, he gives them great land and great benefits. We see this recorded in Genesis chapter 47, verse 11 through 12. It says, And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses. A pharaoh had commanded, then Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with bread according to the number and their families. That action by Joseph resulted in a specific promise that was delivered by his father Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis chapter 48 verses 21 through 22 it says then Israel again Jacob said to Joseph behold I am dying but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers moreover I have given to you one portion above your brothers which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow as a direct result of that double portion Joseph was given two territories those two territories were named after his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, you'll see at some particular times, uh, specifically in Numbers chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, that Ephraim is referred to as Joseph's uh, territory. But typically, when we see Ephraim and Manasseh, it's a result of that double portion, again, named after Joseph's sons. Now, you may ask yourself, that's great, but where what happened to the tribes of Israel today? They're not gone. They're still there. As we understand in the Old Testament, as a result of King Solomon's right horrible rule, he was a wise man, but he got himself tied up with a lot of women that were pagan, and so his heart was split between the true God and the pagan gods. And so as a result of that, at the end of his rule, we understand that the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was split into two. Right? You've got the northern kingdom, and you have the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom consisted of the other ten tribes. As you read through the Old Testament, you see this constant cycle of with the Jews. They they were in captivity, and then they were free because they were like, God, I'm tired of that captivity. I repent. And so God freed them, and then they fell into captivity again. And that cycle continues and continues and continues. As you go into the New Testament, they're now receiving persecution for being followers of Christ, the Apostle Paul being a huge part of that when he was Saul. Well, that caused the Jews to spread out. And we'll look at this a little bit later on, known as the Diaspora. As they spread out, we see through time that it became harder and harder for them to be able to keep track of the 12 tribes. But that doesn't mean that God stopped keeping track. Because follow with me here. In Revelation, specifically in chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, we see the future of the 12 tribes. We understand that during the tribulation, the Antichrist will come and he will fool a ton of people into believing that he was the Christ. But God and his sovereignty will seal 144,000 Jews. You've heard that before. Well, that equals to be 12,000 Jews from each tribe. I won't take the time to read it, but in Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, it gives each one of those tribes and it says 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, and 12,000 from that tribe. Again, just because we can't keep track of the 12 tribes and who came from what doesn't mean that God stopped keeping track. And we will see that come into play during the tribulation towards the end of the time. So going back to James here, when it comes to this particular letter, the audience that we see here in this setting is a concerned leader of the Jerusalem church who is writing a letter to the Jewish Christians that had left the area according to God's sovereign plan you say what are you talking about james writes this letter to the jewish people that are scattered all throughout the surrounding regions because they left as a result of the persecution again this is a direct fulfillment of what god said to begin with to kind of put this in play here what god says in acts chapter or jesus says in acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says that you will be witnesses of me first as i read it earlier in jerusalem and then in Judea, and then Samaria, and then he adds into the uttermost parts of the earth. But the issue that was happening here is that the Christians were becoming comfortable where they were in Jerusalem. They were becoming saved. They weren't spreading out. They weren't obeying like they should have and spreading the gospel out. And so what God does in his sovereignty is he allows persecution to come. He allows persecution to take place, forcing them to spread out. So James, having his congregation in front of him at one point, notices that they're all fleeing for persecution. They run away. James is now concerned for his audience because he knows they're not in a good church. His own congregation has left, which leads us to our third and final point here this morning. What's the purpose of this letter? It was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to the scattered Jews that had left. Now what's the purpose of it? Since the Jewish people were scattered away from the leadership of James and the church in Jerusalem, the ultimate purpose of this letter was to be a basic guideline for the Christian faith. James knew that the Christians would run into false teachers and false doctrine. And so much like the letter to the Colossians, James writes this letter to warn the Jews of the false heresy that they would encounter. Now really the primary way in which he does this and develops his point is through this subject of faith and works. Matter of fact, if you were to look at James chapter 2, verse 18, this is really the foundation of the entire book. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The point that James tells the people here through this letter is that if you're claiming to be a Christian, then act like it. What you will notice throughout this letter, though, it's interesting because we've been focusing on really the past year and a half on the Apostle Paul's writings. What you'll notice with the Apostle James, sorry, the disciple James, the leader James, he is very much in your face. The Apostle Paul is like a lawyer. He kind of like hears the point, and he circles all around it to eventually get to the point, which is like sometimes you're reading Romans, and it's like, good night, just to the point, right? James is not like that. James just says, basically, here's the truth, I'm going to smack you in the face with it. He's very much cutthroat. You'll notice this in the book. He doesn't mess around. He gets right to the point. And so what we're going to journey through here together, as we're just laying out the foundation today, over the next several months, is really what does it mean or what does it look like to live in faith? And what does it mean when James says faith without works is dead? And so as doing so, improving his point, he gives us a series of tests. And each of these tests James mentions helps us determine what he means when he makes this statement, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Hence the reason why we have entitled our study, James, A Faith That Works. So as we close out this morning, you may ask yourself, Pastor Brandon, if this letter was written to the Jews that were dispersed away from the church in Jerusalem, then why is this relevant to me today? Because none of us in here are Jews, and we do not match the category of the audience that he's writing to. And I would challenge you, don't get hung up on the nationality of it. Get hung up on everything that we have in common and yes James is specifically writing to Jews but they were Christian Jews and so James writes this book to Christians and so as time continues to progress and we get further and further away from truth, and it becomes harder to find what the scriptures truly say. As I read last week, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter four, verses two through four: "Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables." It is extremely important for us to discover exactly what a christian should look like supporting our theme this year of walking worthy how does a genuine christian manifest itself through our works and behavior this is why our study in james this year will be so important for us